Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. We are in a, starting a new series today that's titled Believe. Um, believe seems to be a popular word this Christmas season. Nike and Colin Kaepernick, Coca-Cola, Macy's, even the Mortgage Bankers Association are getting to the act, each of them seizing on the theme of believing for their ad campaigns this year. Nike wants us to believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything, not a not a bad thought, but they want us to just do it without providing any direction at all with regard to what that something might actually be. Coca-Cola urges us to believe in a happier tomorrow, but doesn't tell us how or why. If I drink a sugary, caffeinated, carbonated beverage tomorrow, will it mean happiness? I don't know. Should I believe that that burp is the real thing? I'm not sure. The Mortgage Bankers Association isn't shy about saying we believe it's a great time to own a home. I agree. It always is. Macy's urges us to believe in the wonder of giving, which begins, of course, with the wonder of buying (laughs) at Macy's. And if you'll just charge up your Macy's card or, heck, your Visa, your American Express, your MasterCard, in 2019 you'll also come to believe in the wonder of compound interest. (laughs) And that will be wonderful. The theme song to one of the most beloved Christmas movies of the last couple of decades invites us to believe in what our heart is saying and what we feel inside. And and I love that particular movie, but um, honestly, neither of those really seem like trustworthy objects to me. Uh, I know my own heart, and uh, I, I don't know about you, but if I have to believe in what my heart is saying or, or, or what I'm feeling inside at any given moment, uh, my belief system is going to be all over the map. See, belief needs a trustworthy object, doesn't it? After all, if you're going to allow yourself to believe in someone or something, it had better be someone or something you can trust. I recently saw this photo of a local pastor, uh, saw it on Facebook. He's bungee jumping off of a very high bridge. Now, I can't imagine jumping off a perfectly good bridge like that. He seemed to think it was a good idea. But here's what I know. At the moment that he dove off of that bridge with his arms extended like wings, he had invested his full belief in the professionalism of the guys up above on the bridge and in the integrity of that bungee cord and of the harness that held him tight to that cord. It was his trustworthy object. At the close of his gospel, John the Apostle gave this summary that pointed to his trustworthy object. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now this morning and then over the next few weeks, right through Christmas Eve, my goal in this series is to provide you with reasons from God's word and from the Christmas story to to believe that Jesus of Nazareth, whose birth we remember and celebrate at this time of year, should also be your trustworthy object. We're going to look at four sources in the Christmas story from God's Word that provide us with trustworthy reasons to believe. 
This morning we're going to look at the prophets, and then the following week the angels, and then the next week the apostles, and then finally on Christmas Eve to believe in Jesus. And, and my hope is that through these messages you'll personally find new and greater reasons to believe in Jesus. Rest your faith in him. Become a Christ follower in your own life. This morning I want to share with you why you can believe the prophets as they point us to Jesus. What exactly is prophecy? There's two words in our vocabulary that kind of say the same thing. One word is the word prediction. The other one is that word prophecy. They're both synonyms. There's similarity in their meaning. Prediction comes from an old Latin word that means to foretell, to make something known beforehand. But in contemporary conversation, we tend to use the word prediction to indicate a presumption or a guess. Maybe an educated or a calculated guess, but it's a guess nevertheless. One need only think of weather predictions or sports predictions to realize that in most cases we think of a prediction more in terms of probabilities than precise outcomes. But when we consider a biblical prophecy, we're considering something quite different from a calculated guess. A prophet is one who speaks for God. A prophecy is a precise word from God for the people of God that points to a precise outcome. To understand the difference in somewhat starker terms, a, a meteorologist, for example, who's consistently inaccurate in his or her predictions of the weather will, will lose credibility, perhaps lose employment, But in the Old Testament, a prophet who prophesied falsely was in jeopardy of losing his life. Deuteronomy 18.20 says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Because that's true, the essential discipline of a prophet was to sharply distinguish the voice of God from all of the voices around him, from the voice of his personal intellect, from the voice of his own emotion, what was going on in his heart, what he felt inside. And only when he had done that was he capable of saying to the people with integrity what the prophet Ezekiel said in chapter 7, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. And only then is he capable of speaking to the people in the name of God and able to publish his message as a message from God. So in Ezekiel 13, 7, God issues this warning to false prophets. Have you not seen false visions and uttered lying divinations when you say the Lord declares, though I have not spoken? Through the prophet Jeremiah, God issued this warning to the people. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hope. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. There are prophets, and there are false prophets. 
The task of the prophet is to declare in advance what is to happen. So the test of the prophet is whether what he has prophesied actually comes to pass. Again in Deuteronomy 18, beginning of verse 21, And if you say in your heart, How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. You know, one of the themes of this time of year, the Christmas season, is the theme of wonder, isn't it? I've always felt that fulfilled prophecy just heightens that profound sense of wonder that pervades the Christmas narrative. In the first chapters of Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, in which we read of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, interspersed among the events are references to biblical prophecy. They just, they just pop up in a staccato all through. For example, Matthew describes Joseph's dream in which an angel instructed him to take Mary as his wife, reassured him that her pregnancy was from the Holy Spirit, and that the child to be born would be the Savior of the world. And then he adds, all this took place. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. One in Matthew 2, Herod inquires of the chief priests and scribes as to where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Later in Matthew 2, when, the, when Herod gave the order to kill all the male children in the vicinity of Bethlehem and the surrounding region who were two years of age uh, or under, Matthew adds this, Then was fulfilled, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel was the wife of Jacob, father of the 12 tribes of Israel. She's, her tomb to this day is in Bethlehem. So Rachel is identified with Bethlehem. When in Luke 1, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary in Nazareth, he said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And in that statement of Gabriel, there is the echo of a, just a variety of prophecies from the Old Testament that point to the promised Messiah being a son of David who would sit on an eternal throne. See, Fulfilled prophecy does a number of things for us. First, it establishes the truth that God really is in control of history. When we see the consistency between the Old Testament and the New Testament, what the Old Testament prophets said would happen and that which we see happening in the, in the New Testament. In Isaiah 48, beginning at verse 3, again, this is God speaking, The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth, and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. 
I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. What a coincidence. My God must have done that. This thing I created, this thing that sits on my shelf and never speaks to me. My God must have done that. The other thing that, another thing that that fulfilled prophecy does is that it demonstrates the divine inspiration and the integrity of the scriptures. In 2 Timothy 3.16 is that classic statement in the New Testament regarding the inspiration of scripture where Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's the spirit of God breathing life through and into and out of his word. In Hebrews 1, beginning at verse 1, the the writer of Hebrews says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. There's a consistency between what the prophets said about Messiah, about the Son of God, and what he came and actually did. Peter wrote to the dispersed churches of the first century, recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Prophets, Jesus, the apostles, consistency, integrity, dependability between what they said. Again, Peter and Chapter 1 of, of his second letter, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now listen to what he says, And we have the prophetic word, the word of the prophets, more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the most important thing that fulfilled prophecy does for us is that it authenticates the identity of Jesus as Christ the Lord. When you read the New Testament from beginning to end, from Matthew to Revelation, it becomes increasingly clear that Jesus' apostles, his the twelve disciples, as they sought to provide persuasive evidence of his identity as the Messiah, for whom the Jews had been waiting for so long. They appealed to two major sources of validation. One, of course, was his resurrection from the dead. And Paul said, if Christ is not raised, then we are of all men most to be pitied, and we're still in our sins, and our message is useless. We're made out to be liars, 
He said, in fact, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and of that they were absolutely persuaded. The other source of validation was messianic prophecy, specifically the sheer number of prophetic declarations that were clearly and accurately fulfilled in the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection from the dead of Jesus of Nazareth. The Old Testament written over a a period of a couple of thousand years contains over 300 references to the coming Messiah, each of which, all of which, can clearly be shown to have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And they establish a a solid confirmation of his credentials as Messiah. Let me turn your attention to Luke chapter 24. This is after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and he joins two of his disciples, not of the twelve, but but still part of the, the larger band of disciples who are walking together from Jerusalem to the city of Emmaus. It says in beginning at verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now listen to his answer. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the, what's the word? prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a moment that must have been. But see what he's telling them. Beginning with Moses, beginning with Genesis, and and all the prophets right on through Malachi. It's all about him. It's all about him. Jesus once said to the Pharisees, you know, you study the scriptures because you believe that in them you have eternal life. But they speak of me, and you will not come to me. You know, the Old Testament contains, as I mentioned, over 300 references to the Messiah, each of which were written at least, at least, 
450 years before Christ, each of which were fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. It's important for us to understand that that these were written hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene. Because the accusation is brought, well, Jesus just manipulated history. He just manipulated the prophets to his own advantage. And one could say that, yeah, there, there may be a few things that a, a human being could manipulate, could pretend, could feign. But the vast majority of the prophecies regarding Messiah, no one could ever manipulate beyond their control. So in the time I have left, I'd like to introduce you to just 12 of these prophecies regarding Messiah including those that are fulfilled in the Christmas narrative. And I just want to say I'm I'm indebted to Josh McDowell for his research that he published in Evidence That Demands a Verdict because he put this together in such clear and understandable form. The first prophecy to which I'd like to point you is actually found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which tells tells us that a redeemer would be born of the seed or the offspring of the woman. The woman in this case, Eve and her progeny. And this is in the context, these words were spoken in the context of God declaring to Adam and Eve and to the serpent in the garden the consequences to each of them of their sin. And in this very sad moment, tragic moment, perhaps the most tragic moment in all of history, as, as humanity rebelled, and, and what we, this is what we refer to as the fall of humanity, as, as, as humanity fell in the garden into sin, there is this word of hope in Genesis 3.15 as God speaks specifically now to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, singular, a distinct person, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He will deal you a crushing death blow, and you will wound him. Galatians 4.4, the Apostle Paul wrote, But when the fullness of time had come, At just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Matthew 1.20 says, But as he, that is Joseph, considered these things, this matter of marrying Mary, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. God fulfilling that ancient prophecy to send a redeemer. And how amazing is it that on the heels of, no pun intended, on the heels of the fall of man, in that moment God promises a redeemer, one who would come and restore, reconcile humanity to God. Isaiah 
tells us that Messiah would be born of a virgin. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah prophesied. In Matthew 1, we read this, at beginning at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but kept her a virgin until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. In Luke 1, verses 34 to 35, Mary, responding to the angel Gabriel in this amazing announcement that she would be the mother of Messiah, answered, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Approximately 2,000 years before Christ, the book of Genesis contains this prophecy. The Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham, the seed of Abraham. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, I will surely bless you you, Abraham, and in your offspring, singular, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. There would be one who would come from Abraham, childless Abraham, who would be the Redeemer, the Messiah. In Matthew 1.1, as Matthew begins the genealogy of Jesus. We read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ is the seed of Abraham. He's the promised redeemer. In Genesis 21:12 we read that Messiah would be a son of Isaac, a descendant of Isaac, but God said to Abraham, "Through Isaac shall your offspring be named." You remember that Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, Isaac the son of promise, Ishmael the son of presumption and impatience. Luke tells us in his genealogy of Jesus that Jesus was the son of Isaac, descendant of Isaac. Understand the, understand the implication of that. It was not through Ishmael, who became the father of the Arab race, that Messiah would come, but through Isaac, the son of promise. God eliminates one half of the entire vast, vast lineage of Abraham. Numbers 24:17 tells us then that Messiah would be a son of Jacob. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Jacob and Israel are the same person. 
Jacob became Israel. God gave him that name. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. And again, this is now 1,450 years before Christ, approximately. And Luke tells us that Jesus was a son of Jacob, that his lineage can be traced through Jacob. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. God eliminates one half of the lineage of Isaac. Genesis 49.10 tells us that Messiah would be a son of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Again, written somewhere in the vicinity of 2,000 years before Christ. Luke tells us that Jesus was the son of Judah. The writer of Hebrews says it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. He was of the tribe of Judah. The lion, Revelation tells us, of the tribe of Judah. Jacob, Israel, had 12 sons out of which came the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 tribes of the Hebrew nation. And God now eliminates 11 twelfths of the tribes of Israel. You see what God is doing. He's telling us where to look, where the line will come, where to find the Messiah when he appears. Isaiah 11.1 tells us that he would come from the family line of Jesse. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And in time... Jesse's family line became a stump, but out of, out of that, a green growth began. Luke three twenty three and 32, Jesus, the son of Jesse. Jeremiah 23, 5 tells us that Messiah would be the son of David. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Again, now approximately 625 years before Christ. And Luke says, Jesus, the son of David. Jesse had at least eight sons that we know of, according to 1 Samuel 16, 10, and 11. And now God eliminates all of Jesse's sons from Messiah's lineage except one, David, the youngest, the forgotten one, the shepherd who became the king of Israel. 700 years before Christ, Micah told us that Messiah would be born at Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, or from eternity, is one translation of that last phrase. We read in Luke 2, verses 4 and 6, that Joseph went up to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And while they were there, the time came for her 
to give birth. Matthew 2, 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Think about that. God is narrowing the family line so that we would know Messiah when he came. But now he eliminates all of the cities in the world for his birth, except one, for the entrance of his son, the entrance of Messiah into the world. It was well known, well understood. The Messiah would be born, would come from Bethlehem. Psalm 110.1 tells us that he would be called Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, the psalmist writing about a thousand years before Christ. Luke 2.11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So said the angels to the shepherds that night outside of Bethlehem. We're going to look more deeply at that next week. In Psalm 72.10, we read that he would be presented with gifts. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Sheba and Seba are both references to Arabia. In Matthew 2, we read this, that now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 11 says they fell down and worshiped him. They, in opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Jeremiah 31.15 tells us that, prophesies the, the killing of children, that Herod would kill children Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Matthew 2. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Jesus' birth precipitated a local holocaust. I've directed your attention to just 12 of these prophecies out of over 300, and we could have been here all day talking about 300, and I haven't really even gone into any depth in them. But as I mentioned, they're all fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. These 300 prophecies deal with his eternal nature, his divine authority, specific events of his personal ministry in surprisingly vivid detail, accurate portrayals and accurate predictions of his arrest, his suffering, his crucifixion, his death his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. Several years ago, a scientist named Peter Stoner selected eight out of these over 300 messianic prophecies. 
And he applied mathematical analysis and the principles of probability to determine the chance that any one man in all of history might have fulfilled just eight prophecies in his lifetime. His research indicated that mathematical probabilities rule out any theory of coincidence regarding the identity of Jesus of Nazareth as the one to whom all of the prophets were pointing. You say, well, how did he do that? Well, he found that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled just eight of the selected prophecies was one in ten to the seventeenth, one in ten to the seventeenth power. And here's what that number looks like. The stoner gave this illustration. He said, imagine filling the entire state of Texas with silver dollars, a foot deep. Everything's big in Texas, right? A foot deep in silver dollars. Take one of those silver dollars, mark it, blindfold a man, have him throw it out into the middle of Texas, spin him around seven times. I didn't say that. But send him into Texas to find that one coin and imagine him picking up just that one that he had marked that had been thrown out into the center of Texas. He said, that's that probability. That's that number. Later, Stoner applied the same analysis to 48 of the 300 prophecies and found that probability to be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. And that number looks like this. I don't even know how to name that number. It's far beyond a gazillion. I know that. You have a greater likelihood of being struck by lightning every day of your life and winning the lottery each of those same days than this probability. So for those who are willing to consider the matter, for those who are willing to take seriously what the prophets have said, take seriously who Jesus Christ is, whether the prophecies match up with him, God has left no doubt as to the identity of the one whom he sent to be our Savior and Lord. Sometimes we ask the question, is there reason to believe? The answer is overwhelming reasons to believe. So as I close, let me simply ask, do you? Do you believe? Really? My prayer for you is that in this season, that your faith will grow. And in this season, if you have not yet believed in Jesus, that that will come true for you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that your word is so clear. Thank you that you left no doubt. That for those who are willing to take it into consideration, the guess, all the guesswork is gone. And that you have pointed clearly and decidedly to Jesus of Nazareth as the one who was promised. 
Lord, thank you that you cared enough to send the very best. That you sent your son Jesus at just the right time. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Under its condemnation, under its guilt, under its bondage. And Lord, thank you that in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. And we have the hope of eternal life, reconciliation with you. The presence of your Holy Spirit, peace of heart and mind, peace among us. Prince of Peace, would you come and reveal yourself to us in this season as we celebrate your birth. And we pray it in your strong name. Amen.